I'm John Gardiner, and you're listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. Model railroading is fun, you just have to know how to do it. In this episode, I'll explain some hobby-specific jargon, give you an overview of the tools you need to build a model railroad, and tell you how to use them safely. Sorry, everybody. Uh, Same story as last episode. I had the Benchwork episode all written up and ready to go, and then I realized that I maybe needed to give you some uh, techniques on uh, how to build Benchwork, uh, specific stuff of how to deal with tools. Then I realized I needed to tell you what kind of tools you needed, and, well, we have this one. When it comes to the jargon side of things as well, well, you see, both railroading and modeling are very complicated, multifaceted pursuits that require a rapid communication of complex and nuanced ideas. As such, both of them have developed very specialized vocabulary which might need explaining to newbies. In all honesty, I really should have done this episode a very long time ago, but it's better to do it now before we start construction. Uh, Better late than never, I guess. So, with much further ado, to benchwork anyway, let's go through some jargon. We've already spoken a lot about uh, the terms of track arrangements in previous episodes, so let's start closing the gaps in our knowledge on that subject. To begin with, the right-of-way is the long, skinny stretch of property that the railroad owns upon which they have the right to place their tracks. On the right-of-way sits the roadbed, which is the earthworks to use to elevate the track above the surrounding surface. Upon the roadbed sits the track, which is covered in and sits upon a layer of ballast, or large-grain gravel. Together, the roadbed and the ballast provide adequate drainage and support for the tracks, making a stable foundation, channeling water away from the track to avoid washouts, and allowing the profile of the track to be finely tuned for smooth train running. The people whom are sent out to maintain the track are called track workers, but are more commonly referred to 
colloquially anyway, as Gandhi dancers. Now, as to who this Gandhi is and why is he dancing, I don't know. Most freight cars, at one point or another, go through a yard, as we've already discussed. The yard ladder is the line of turnouts that lead to all the tracks. The part of a turnout that moves is called the switch. So a railroader throws a switch in order to change its direction, but as a modeler and a track layer, you lay a turnout. These two terms are often confused with one another. The cast metal piece of the turnout where the inner rails meet and cross one another is called the frog. An arrangement of two turnouts together allowing passage from one track to another on a double-track mainline is called a crossover, and they are equivalent to lane changes on a highway. Uh, the piece of track where two railroad mainlines cross but do not connect is called a diamond, and that is equivalent to a road intersection. Finally, whereas most turnouts are straight on the main side and diverge at an angle, a Y, spelled W-Y-E, is a turnout where both directions diverge oppositely away from center, and it's so-called because it looks like the letter Y. If both tracks diverge away from the same direction of a turnout, it is called a curved turnout. A Y track, also spelled the same way, is a triangle-shaped piece of track used to turn locomotives or even whole trains, and is usually preferred to turntables because they're expensive, and balloon loops because they take up a lot of real estate. Y tracks are so-called because they most often contain a Y turnout, and they are the automotive equivalent of a three-point turn. Now let's take a moment to look at the types of railroad cars and their parts. To start off with, you have the locomotive, which is sometimes called the engine, though this more accurately refers to the apparatus of power of the locomotive, which itself can be steam or diesel. A tank engine is a type of steam locomotive whose water tank surrounds its boiler, obviating the need for a tender, which is the fuel car married to the steam engine portion of the locomotive. There are other types of locomotives worth discussing as well. High railers, a modern invention, are basically normal road vehicles or pickup trucks fitted with deployable rail wheels on the front and back, allowing them to travel down the railroad tracks for maintenance purposes. The historic version of a high railer is a speeder, a very light-duty and incredibly dinky little vehicle, maybe with four or six seats tops and half as many cylinders if we're being honest. The speeder was preceded by the pump-action handcar, which most people associate with railroading, which itself was preceded by the push car, which was basically a very small flat car with poles that you would push along the right-of-way, somewhat equivalent to what a gondolier in Venice would do. Moving on to more conventional locomotives, a motor, or a traction motor, is a locomotive powered by an electrical current, such as those pulling Amtrak trains on the Northeast Corridor. A trolley is a type of traction motor from the olden days that ran entirely in a city, usually sharing the road with other vehicles. An interurban is a more robustly built trolley that more closely resembled self-powered regular railroad passenger cars. Interurbans, eponymously, were faster electric railroads that ran primarily between more distantly separated municipalities. Only one true interurban railroad remains in North America, and that is in Yakima, Washington. In modern parlance, due to the resurgence of redesigned public transit systems in America, trolleys are now known as streetcars, and interurbans somewhat resemble modern light rail, to be contrasted with heavy rail, aka subways. 
Finally, related to these transportational systems, MUs are multiple-unit vehicles, where a train has no true locomotive because each car has motors on board and contributes a little bit to the forward momentum. RDCs, or rail diesel cars, were the first type of MU passenger systems, and they were invented in the 1950s to simplify and cheapen passenger service on lines with little passenger traffic, but that the railroad was required to keep serving by the Interstate Commerce Commission, or ICC. EMUs are electrical multiple units, and are commonly found on very large electrified commuter railroads, such as Metro North in New York City, or the Metro Electric District in the far superior Chicago. DMUs, or diesel multiple units, are the latest development in transportation technology, and are best described as diesel light rails, as opposed to EMUs' more canonical passenger car-like design. Examples of DMUs include the New Jersey Transit's River Line between Trenton and Philadelphia, the Trillium Line of the O-Train in Ottawa, the Union Pearson Express in Toronto, the Westside Express in Portland, Smart in the San Francisco area, Capital Metro Rail in Austin, the Sprinter in San Diego, and the A-Train in Dallas. DMUs are a fairly recent development and are thusly more rare in America than normal light rail and subway systems, there being only these eight in North America, as opposed to the 35 light rail and 22 subway systems. But they stand a chance of cheaply and efficiently bringing public transit to near-city suburban and distal urban districts, so they are a sector of public transit that I am watching quite earnestly. Anyway, on the other end of the train, you have the caboose sometimes called a way car or a cabin car on specific prototype railroads. The elevated window portion of the caboose is called the cupola, and it is used by the conductor and the brakeman to check the train for hot boxes. Railroad cars are all mounted on trucks, which are wheel assemblages of anywhere from two to four axles. While all modern railroad cars use ball bearings, older cars used to run on friction bearings that were filled with journal fluid, basically oil, and the fabric-y byproducts of the cotton-making process, or old rags. If there wasn't enough journal fluid in the journal box, the cotton would catch on fire. Thus, as the train would go around corners, crew members sitting in the caboose cupola would check the freight cars for smoking trucks, or hot boxes, in need of dousing. While we're down here underneath the cars, it's worth noting that railroad wheels have flanges, or raised portions of the wheel's inner side in order to keep the wheel from shifting off the rail. Now we can move on to rolling stock, that is, passenger and freight cars. Passenger cars are, quite obviously, cars that carry people. Thank you very much for listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. I hope you've learned a lot. <laughs> Jim Matthews, CEO of the Railroad Passengers Association, humorously calls passenger cars container cars for wallets. Their subclasses are all fairly eponymous. Coach car, sleeper car, baggage car, dining car, dome car, observation car, etc., Modern passenger cars sometimes are bi-level coaches, first pioneered by the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, and first used on commuter railroads on the GO train in Toronto. Now, these are found in the form of Amtrak superliners for long-distance trains and most modern commuter railroads. A notable name is a Pullman car, which is basically a car owned and operated by the Pullman Company out of Chicago, but which was put onto an actual railroad's passenger train. 
So, even though the Pullman Company was synonymous with sleeper cars, because it didn't actually run the trains, it was basically the largest hotel in America, serving millions of customers every single night. Hence, a Pullman was slang for a sleeper car. Cars on passenger trains that don't actually hold passengers or their baggage were called head-end revenue cars, so-called because most often they rode on the front of a passenger train between the coaches and the locomotive. Though known for carrying things from newspaper to fish, the most common head-end revenue car is the RPO, or Railway Post Office Car, which usually had half a dozen actively sorting post office personnel on board, and which had attachments to pick up and drop off mailbags at station platforms on the fly, that is, without the train needing to stop. The most canonical freight car is the boxcar. It is simply a cuboidal shed mounted on trucks with a sliding door near the middle of each long side. The other simplest freight car is the flat car, which is a boxcar sans walls and roof. A twist on the boxcar is a refrigerator car, more commonly called a reefer, which is basically a climate-controlled boxcar used to haul perishables. A high-cube, spelled H-I-cube, boxcar, is a taller, modern boxcar which can accommodate more materials for larger, less dense loads, and are distinguished by a horizontal strip of paint at the top of the car to visually signify that it has a greater-than-average height. A stock car is a boxcar with open slats on the sides used to haul livestock, a practice largely discontinued by the 1940s. These can have one or two levels, but are all the same height, thus making the two-level cars for shorter animals, like pigs, chickens, or misbehaving children. More specialized cars can be used to haul aggregates. Originally, aggregates in general, and grain specifically, were hauled within boxcars, either in sacks or in bulk, by placing wood slats covering the boxcar door and pouring the grains in through the top. However, since that point, gondolas and hoppers have taken over. They may both be tall or short, and some may be covered to protect their contents from the weather. But the main difference is that hoppers have hatches in the bottom to allow for gravity unloading, but gondolas do not, and must be inverted by a machine or shoveled out by hand in order to be emptied. However, as a general rule of thumb, gondolas are usually low-sided, and hoppers are usually high-sided. The only major exception to this rule are bathtub gondolas, which are used to haul truly massive amounts of material, usually coal, by getting the carrying area as close to the railhead as possible, thereby leaving no room for hatches, and therefore not actually being a hopper despite being functionally equivalent to one. Tank cars are obviously used to transport liquids. Earlier tank cars were tubs or tubes mounted on flat cars, but modern tank cars use the tanks as the car bodies, basically being a cylinder with trucks on either end. Bulkhead flat cars are basically flat cars with full height end walls, and center beam flat cars are bulkhead flat cars with a full height I-beam running down the middle of the flat car from bulkhead to bulkhead. These are used for cargoes that need support in order to avoid shifting during transport, but don't need the protection of a boxcar or can't fit in a boxcar door. Most often, bulkhead flat cars are loaded with pipes, and center beam flat cars are loaded with lumber bundles. Auto-rack cars are the modern-day equivalent of stock cars. They carry automobiles. They can be two or three interior stories and have a thin grated metal on their sides. Auto-racks also have unique chaining door mechanisms, which allow automobiles to be driven from one car to the next, allowing you to unload or load a long string of auto-racks all from one end. 
This being the case, though, they are still frequently split in order to unload just for sake of speed. Finally, the behemoth of modern freight transport is the intermodal container. A first conceived in the 1960s and put into practice in the 1980s, it is so named because the container, itself, can be transferred from boat to train to truck without being break-bulk cargo, the somewhat grammatically stunted term used to describe when individual items must be manually unpacked, say, from the hold of a ship and into the interior of a boxcar. Intermodal containers are placed in well cars, which are frequently in married pairs, where, for example, four cars share five trucks, thus not capable of being detached without extra trucks and a crane. Intermodal containers can be stacked too tall. If there is an extra long container, it goes on the top. If there are two half-length containers, they go on the bottom. The final class of rolling stock are maintenance-of-way, or MOW cars. These are all non-revenue cars, meaning that they don't directly contribute to the acquisition of money for the railroad. As can be inferred, MOW equipment is used to maintain railroad property. Some maintenance-of-way cars can be regular freight cars specifically dedicated to the task, like a boxcar or a flat car, whereas others could be more specialized, like a ballast tamper, a snowplow, a crane, etc. In olden times, there were occasionally bunkhouse cars for section crews or gandy dancers to sleep in, allowing them to do bigger multi-day jobs and allowing them to extend their serviceable area on a railroad. Now that we've exhaustively discussed the component cars of a train, let's discuss some terms relevant to trains themselves. When you're moving around a portion of a train's consist, it's called a cut of cars, so named because you must cut or uncouple, the trains somewhere in the middle to access them. A bad-ordered car is a car that has some sort of mechanical defect that prevents it from being safely hauled by a train. Normally, these are simply taken out of the train and put on a repair-in-place, or rip track, which allows for quick and light repairs that don't require the car to be unloaded. A foreign car is a car from another railroad. Normally, this is laden with cargo for a customer on the current railroad's line, and, when emptied, it must be returned as quickly as possible to the home road in order to prevent the accrual of excess fees. However, if the railroad gets an order for a shipment to a consignee on the foreign railroad's line, the foreign car may be temporarily diverted to the industry and sent back loaded. This system, however, has been largely supplanted by equipment pools, where third-party companies own most of the freight cars on the railroad and allow them to be transferred anywhere in the country. Normally, the reporting marks of the car designate that it's part of an equipment pool if it has an X on the end, like GATX or TTX. When it comes to personnel, there are several major players involved. The conductor is in charge of the whole shebang, informing where the train goes and when. Everyone is subordinate to the conductor, even though the engineer is usually more experienced. In fact, to give you an example of their duties, during the Civil War era, conductors were actually known as the captains of their trains, and could also conduct marriages like normal seagoing captains. The engineer is in charge of moving the locomotive and train to carry out the orders of the conductor, but can usurp the conductor's authority on matters of safety simply by refusing to move the locomotive. In the days of steam, the fireman was subordinate to the engineer, and made sure that the locomotive had the adequate boiler pressure required to do whatever the engineer needed of it at any given point in time. Anybody else part of a train crew would normally be a brakeman on freight trains, or car attendants on passenger trains. 
They carried out the minutiae of the operation, uncoupling, coupling, or setting car brakes, or boarding, detraining, and taking passengers' tickets, respectively. Two special crew members of note are the hostler, who shunted locomotives around roundhouses and ready tracks, delivering them to all of the relevant services, like light maintenance, water, fuel, etc., and the red cap, which was a specialty station attendant whom helped passengers to find their trains and carry their luggage, a position first coined by George H. Daniels, the publicist of the New York Central Railroad, in 1900. When moving about the train, crew members would hold grab irons, which are the very long and robust handles you normally see bolted around the car, normally on the corners. On the subject of car parts, the original type of connection between cars was the link and pin system, where an ovular link would extend out of the metal attachment of one car and into the metal attachment of another car and would be secured in place by pins that would go through the metal attachments. These systems were very old and dangerous, so they were quickly supplanted by the modern knuckle coupler, which looks very much like a fist that can clamp and lock into another coupler. The couplers are locked shut by pins, but these pins can be lifted from the outside of the car by an uncoupling lever. A few random terms that I couldn't find a place for are the following. A hump yard is a special kind of yard with a hill at one end, where cars are pushed over the hill and coast down into their correct classification track, where the turnouts are lined by computers or an interlocking tower. On the way down, the car's speed is regulated by computer-controlled retarders, or clamps that brush the wheel flange with varying pressure to slow the car to the desired speed. Idler cars are old cars, usually flat cars or empty hoppers, that are used as a handle to allow the locomotive to reach places where it cannot go. For example, on the apron or bridge leading to a car float, or into a building with active workers or close clearances. Idler cars also have a more modern application, where they are used to protect the surrounding train from dangerous or explosive cargoes. Thus, if something blows up, it's the otherwise near-useless car that's damaged rather than a usable car loaded with usable and suable cargo. Finally, there's LCL, or Less Than Carload Lot Freight. If a shipper's cargo wouldn't take up a whole car's worth of volume, it could be shipped in a car with a bunch of other LCL freight, which would then be delivered to the destination town's freight house, which was a railroad-owned warehouse, usually very near to a station, for pickup. These are somewhat related to team tracks, which are empty spurs that serve industries without rail access, wherein they drive up to the railroad car parked on the team track and unload its contents, ferrying the cargo the last mile themselves, by truck, or, how it got its name, a team of horses. When it comes to actually moving the trains, there are equally as many terms for discussing operations. A consist is what your train consists of. For passenger trains, a consist can be a more formal order of arrangement of cars, such as observation car, two coaches, and a sleeper car. But, for freight trains, it's more typically used to describe the type of freight being hauled. For example, a unit train is a train all of one car type. These are most commonly in the form of intermodal trains, grain trains, coal trains, ore trains, etc. More often than not, at least in the modern era, unit trains go straight to their destination from the source, seldom stopping to remarshal cars along the way. For example, all of the intermodal containers destined for Las Vegas would be loaded into one train which would then go from the port non-stop to Sin City. 
A mixed train is the opposite of a unit train, and it has a bunch of different cargo types and freight cars. Mixed trains can be manifest or through trains, which hop from one yard to another, bringing only cars destined to go through that yard. Then, the cars in the yard are sorted into a local train, which goes and stops at all of the industries along the way. A true local train, sometimes called a peddler freight, starts in one yard and ends in another, often returning the next day, which causes the crew to sleep overnight and away from home. But a turn is a special type of local that starts and ends in the same yard, requiring it to therefore turn halfway through its journey, hence the name. The typical journey of a car is to be picked up by one local train, brought to the nearest yard, and then ride a manifest to the yard closest to its destination, where it will then be put in a local train for final delivery. Train movements can be coordinated by the dispatcher. If signaling systems are in place, either semaphores or lights, the dispatcher can set them to stop a train or give them a highball, which is a colloquialism for clear head movement permitted. If the railroad line is in dark territory, that which is unsignaled, train movements must be coordinated by train orders, commonly called flimsies, which are written down by station agents from the dispatcher over a telegraph or phone line and then handed to a passing train crew. All of this is to coordinate meets, or pre-arranged times and locations where one train must pull into a siding and let another pass. Ideally, a railroad won't have any cornfield meets, where one train meets another in the middle of a cornfield, going towards each other on a single track, leading to undesirable results. When going about their business switching cars, train crews would also have additional important paperwork. Waybills are forms dictating where each car was coming from, where it was going to, the shipper, the consignee, the lading, the weight, and anything else relevant. Every car in a train would have a waybill, except for empty cars, which would be returned to the nearest yard. On the long waits, when the train is traveling from town to town, the conductor would sit in the caboose at his desk and write up a switch list, which is the most efficient order of pickups and setouts that the train would make when it arrives at all of the towns along the line. The place within each town, or along each spur, where a car is supposed to be delivered is called a spot. And remember, it's not just an entire industry, it could sometimes be which specific door at that industry the car must be delivered to. When making their switching movements, some daring crews would make a move near universally banned in all railroad rulebooks. A flying switch, as it was called, is when the locomotive would need to do a facing point switching move, but did not have access to or time to do a runaround. The locomotive would bring a car up to speed, and then a crew member riding the freight car would uncouple it while in motion. The locomotive would pull farther ahead past the switch, and a ground crew member would throw the switch, and the freight car would coast into the siding. If the car was moving too quickly, the crew member riding the car would pull the brake wheel and slow it down to a stop right where it needs to be. This movement is particularly prone to accidents. If a train going up a hill was too heavy, there are multiple options to solve the problem. The most obvious is to add a helper locomotive. Normally, the helper or pusher engine would push from the rear, but if both engines were on the front, it would be called a double header. At the top of the hill, the locomotive would be cut off and returned down the hill running light, that is, without cars or a caboose. In the modern era, with improved technology, locomotives on long trains can be dropped in the middle of the train, all of which can be controlled from the lead locomotive. This is called a DPU, or Distributed Power Units, system. 
However, extra locomotives were not always available, especially on many beginner-genic short lines. In such cases, the locomotive would cut the train in half, haul the first half up the hill, and find a spot to park it, then go down the hill and get the rest. This is called doubling the hill. A train is said to be carrying green if it has green flags on the front, which signifies that there is a second section of that same train running five minutes behind. This was most famously used on crackshot New York Central passenger trains between New York and Chicago, some of which would run in seven or eight sections, but it could also be used for literally any other train that exceeds its locomotive's tonnage unit. This gave rise to the safety-minded saying that a train hasn't passed until its rear markers have. Thus, to this day, every train still must carry red lights or red flags facing to its rear in order to signify its end. Similarly, if a train was carrying white, it had white flags on the front of the locomotive, signifying that it was an extra train. Extras were trains that were not on the published timetables and were assigned when there were additional cars needing distribution or collection, but that the regularly scheduled trains couldn't handle. Extra trains were inferior to all other trains except by order of the dispatcher. If there was only one extra train, it could do its job easily by ducking into sidings to avoid the published train schedules. However, if there were two extra trains, such that neither would know each other's location because neither had a schedule, the dispatcher would have to intervene and give them both schedules, or a meet order, i.e. meet here at this time if you arrive early, wait. Now for some more random terms. If a train is running alone with only a locomotive and a caboose, due to low freight volume, it is called a caboose hop. If a train must make a non-revenue movement to start its daily tasks, such as an empty passenger train moving from the yard to its starting terminal, it is called a deadhead. If a train must wait at a location before it starts movements again, it is called a layover, and this is most often used for passenger trains at the end of lines before they turn around. If a train is waiting for a long time in a siding for another train, it is colloquially said to be in the hole. If a train is making a short shuttling movement, such as from a major passenger station to a somewhat nearby smaller station that is not on the main line, or shuttling cars from one nearby yard to another, it is called a scoot. Examples of passenger scoots include Amtrak's Springfield Shuttle, the Almaden Shuttle on the VTA light rail in San Jose, Metro-North's New Canaan Branch, and Chicago's Yellow Line. Finally, we're done with the prototype. Now I will move on to describing the basic tools you'll need in order to build your first model railroad. To begin with, let's start with bench work. You're definitely going to need a level to, obviously, make sure that things are level. A tape measure should also be considered mandatory. You'll also need a steel carpenter's square to make sure that things aren't bending or canted. I personally greatly enjoy right angle clamps, which hold boards together at perfect right angles while you glue and drill them together. Among some of the random things you'll need include a hammer to violently smash things that you are unhappy with, a utility knife, screwdrivers, pliers, wire strippers, files, sanding blocks, and a caulk gun. Clamps are also always good to have, most often bar clamps, which hold things together across great distances, but spring clamps and C clamps, which cover shorter distances, might be useful too, depending on the application. I personally prefer Irwin quick clamps. 
If you plan on cutting the wood yourself, I recommend a reciprocating saw, as this allows the most flexibility of cuts. Straight and long cuts, however, are better made with circular saws, either table-mounted or handheld. Finally, you'll obviously need a cordless drill, with appropriate drill bits and screws. When it comes to wiring, the most obvious need is a good soldering iron, solder, and flux, as these will be used to make electrical connections between wires. It's also wise to invest in a good soldering iron holder and cleaning kit to ensure that your soldering iron stays safe and well operating. Needle nose pliers are also very useful, as they can increase the distance between your hand and the hot burny thing. To lay track, you will definitely need rail cutters, an NMRA track gauge to ensure proper track geometry, an abrasive track cleaner, and an old length of rail with the flanges filed down to spread new rail joiners more easily. Also, a hammer might be useful. See previous use. For scenery, many different tools can be put to use in one way or another, but the basics include a measuring or mixing cup dedicated to modeling, as they tend to get very messy, an eyedropper, or the technical scientific term, a squishy pipette, a putty knife, a toothbrush, a pick or awl, and a spray bottle. The three most necessary consumables to scenery are white glue, scenic cement, which can also be diluted white glue, and isopropanol. Building models is always the most tool-intensive part of the hobby, along with benchwork. If I have to give any advice, I recommend buying many and good tools up front, as they will last you a lifetime in the hobby and will always work off their purchase price eventually. Most commonly, you're going to need tools to cut things. Hobby knives, also called X-Acto knives for their major manufacturer, are good all-around tools to have, as they can cut pretty much anything, including fine details. Razor saws or miter saws back up the X-Acto knife for longer, straighter, more medium-duty cuts. Make sure to get replacement blades for all of these, as you should never use a dull knife. Jeweler's files and emery boards can be used to touch up the rough edges left from cutting. Another useful but significantly more expensive tool for cutting is the Dremel, which is a handheld drill to which you can attach sanders, cutting discs, polishing discs, little drill bits, etc. Basically anything you can put your mind to. Given the very high purchase price, I advise waiting until you're committed to the hobby, but in the meantime, keep the Dremel in mind as an option for heavy-duty projects. For manipulating things, you will need fine-duty tools like tweezers and small needle-nose pliers. Different types of pliers and tweezers can be used for different purposes, so it's useful to have multiple. I always find great use from small benchtop bar clamps, just like those used for bench work, but 5 or 6 inches long instead of 2 or 3 feet long. To do miniature mechanical work, you will need miniature screwdrivers for small screws and a pin vise for small drill bits the latter of which is an ultra-tiny hand-operated drill. To paint things, you'll need acrylic paints and paintbrushes, ideally of fine and smooth hairs. Many, many modelers swear by airbrushes, but these can be expensive and are mostly used for advanced painting and detail work, so I would advise waiting until you are a few years into the hobby before you get one. It's also important to have paint remover and tester's dull coat, a product which I think has recently been rebranded to clear coat, 
which is basically a clear, matte, lusterless sealant that you can use to spray over paint jobs and weathering powders to protect them, and to take away the obnoxious, unrealistic glare or plastic sheen found on some models. One very important genre of tool of note is that of adhesives. Every single stage of model railroading will need glue at some point in time, so here are the most common types. CA, or cyanoacrylate, adhesive should be considered mandatory for your toolbox. More commonly known as superglue, it creates a tight bond between non-like materials. For certain applications, you can use CA Accelerant, a chemical wash that cures the glue near instantaneously. Make sure not to get any CA on your fingers, as it can take forever to come off. An advanced type of glue, like CA, is a two-part epoxy. Epoxy glues can bind any two conceivable materials together with great strength. However, these are mostly used in multimedia kits, which themselves are assuredly not beginner tasks. Thus, you hopefully shouldn't need epoxy glue for a very long time. It's also a good idea to have a general purpose glue on hand for random applications. For this, water-soluble white or school glue should do perfectly. When it comes to building kits, two types of glues are very important to have. Plastic cement for plastic kits, and wood glue for laser-cut wood kits. Plastic cement is a liquid or gel that chemically melts plastic at low temperature. I personally prefer the liquid type. All you need to do is lightly brush a very small amount onto the surfaces you wish to join together, and let them sit for a few dozen minutes. Do not over-apply plastic cement, as it will turn the entire piece into a sad, saggy mess. I speak from experience. Wood glue is the exact same stuff that you use for benchwork construction, just in a smaller bottle. I have a few small bottles of modeling wood glue that I usually refill from the larger ones for benchwork. Finally, for scenery, you will need scenic cement, or matte medium. This is just a watery white liquid that can seep into all of the grains of dirt, sand, or ground foam that you've applied. When the vector evaporates, it leaves a near-invisible coating of glue behind that binds all of the grains together into a solid, uniform feature. Some people use a solution of white glue diluted one part in four in water. But, as much as it pains me to say, given the very high price tag of scenic cement bottles, I do honestly think the scenic cement works better at securing scenery. I guess, as with most things, you get what you pay for. Now that we've finished our romp through the sticky world of adhesives, there are two final types of tools that I want to make note of. The first is that of used tools. Whenever a tool of yours has outlived its usefulness, don't immediately throw it away, as it may have another purpose. Dull rail cutters can be used for non-precision cutting jobs, like for very non-dense woods. Paintbrushes with missing hairs can be used for scenery work, like painting the ground brown. Hell, even paintbrushes that have completely fallen apart can still have their handles used as stirring sticks. So don't immediately toss things away. You never know what they might be useful for. Finally, and I'm saving this tool for last because I think it is the single most overlooked tool for beginners, yet the most profoundly useful, the foam cradle. This is basically a soft foam wedge or trough that you can lay locomotives or cars in upside down and work on their undersides without damaging any of the delicate details on the shell. 
Good cradles will also have small divots for you to store the ultra-tiny parts in that you may remove during a disassembly operation. These can be incredibly useful for everything from routine maintenance to coupler swapping to DCC installation. Now that you know all the tools you'll need to use in the hobby, I want to take a moment to discuss a very important subject. Safety. While model railroading might be a hobby, it is one that requires the use of power tools and industrial-esque equipment. No hobby should risk life and limb, as they're supposed to be things that relax you and let you forget the stresses of everyday life. Follow these guidelines to remain safe, and, as in all things, use caution and common sense. When you're working in the train room, always try to keep the area clean and well-lit. If you can adequately see all aspects of what you're doing, you're less likely to hurt yourself with something sharp or dangerous that you might otherwise miss. The tools you use should also be in good condition. As aforementioned, never use a dull blade or tool. A dull tool is a dangerous tool. Also, never use a tool that is old, has chipped striking surfaces, or rattles incorrectly whenever you use it. Whenever you're working with nippers, power saws, cutters, or anything that could send small parts flying at great speed, wear safety goggles. Good goggles are usually available for under $20 at local university bookstores for chemistry lab students, and these can cover much more of your face than those you might pick up at a hardware store. Many activities in the hobby will produce dust, smoke, or aerosolized particulate. Whenever you see or smell these, do not inhale them at all. Even if it's just simple sawdust, take it from me, a biologist, that these can do great harm to your respiratory system. Work in large, well-ventilated areas and wear a dust mask. You can usually get a bunch of cough masks from a local pharmacy very cheaply. If you're doing stuff for a prolonged period of time or lack adequate ventilation, take a fan into the room and use it to blow the offending particulate to the far side of the room. Hopefully, by the time the air circulates back to you, the particulate in it would have been precipitated out or diluted. Similarly to such dusts or smokes, most paints and glues will give off vapors when drying. So if you're doing a lot of painting, leave the train room overnight to let it clear out. If you're airbrushing such paints, use a professional cartridge-based paint mask. Dust masks won't cut it. Finally, these vapors and particulates can often be flammable. Consider it like a gas stove. Don't let the vapors build up, and don't work in a room that has an active flame, heat source, or running an exposed electrical current just for safety's sake. It also couldn't hurt to wear gloves when working with paints or solvents. Basic rule of thumb for all of this, blow it away until you can't smell it, and if it makes you cough, get out. When working with CA adhesive, take great caution to not touch the glue with your bare hands. For some reason, it will cure instantaneously and it will be very difficult to get off. Acetone can be used to uncure CA, but keep in mind that acetone is toxic too. So if you decide to use it to remove the glues from your hands, wash your hands immediately afterwards. Electrically, model trains run on very low voltages, and some people can become confident enough to think that they can work with high-voltage products. I strongly recommend against this idea. The worst that could happen when tinkering with models is that the model gets fried and you get lightly zapped. However, the worst that could happen when tinkering with household voltage equipment is that you get electrocuted, die, and can no longer give this podcast good ratings on iTunes. A far worse fate. Thus, if it comes in a well-built, tightly sealed box that plugs into the wall, 
Do not mess with it. Another note on safety while wiring, remember that a soldering iron is very, very, very hot and can give you serious burns. Always work with a soldering iron stand and avoid the tip coming in contact with any surface. The solder itself, when in too large a drop or when coming in contact with other cold liquids, can sometimes form bubbling little grenades of molten death that spew projectiles in every direction. Don't flick a soldering iron, don't use too much solder, and wear eye protection. Finally, when using power tools, don't wear loose or unbuttoned clothing, necklaces, or other loose jewelry. I, with my hair in excess of 24 inches, root to tip, also put my hair back when modeling. When you're working with potentially nasty machines, you don't want any loose articles attached to your person to get caught up in the machines and drag you closer to said potentially nasty machine. That would be unpleasant. If you're working with a saw, never, ever let your body parts get within a foot of the blade. If you need to make small cuts, use scrap wood to manipulate the pieces from a distance. I realize that this episode is going to be one of the more boring and technical ones, but I want to get this all out here in one go so that all of the rest of what I say in future episodes will make complete sense. Next time, I absolutely promise this time we will start construction. For now, though, I want to give you a little reward for listening through all of this so far. While some people think that the hobby is a dorky one to engage in, I would like to take a moment to dispel this notion. Here's a list of some other model railroaders, some of whom you might just be familiar with. For some reason, acting draws a lot of model railroaders, as Michael Gross, Donald Sutherland, Gary Coleman, Harper Goff, and Gene Hackman are all model railroaders. The same goes for musicians and singers, as some famous modelers among their ranks include Phil Collins, the British drummer, Merle Haggard, a country singer, Frank Sinatra, the crybaby, Bruce Springsteen, Mel Torme, Neil Young, the rock star, Johnny Cash, the folk singer, Claude Bowling, the French jazz pianist, Eric Clapton, and Jules Holland, the British musician. There are also a lot of model railroaders in media generally, such as Rick Green, the Canadian comedian, Regis Kordick, the radio personality, Bob Costas, the sports journalist, Ward Kimball, the Disney animator, Sally Jesse Raphael, the American TV host, Tom Snyder, the American TV personality, and James May, the British host of Top Gear and Grand Tour. Politicians and businessmen also have their fair share, including Jim Pattison, the Canadian entrepreneur, Pete Waterman, the British record producer, and Hermann Göring, the Nazi military leader. Sadly, this hobby is not immune to white supremacists. Many sportsmen also engage in model railroading, including Joe DiMaggio, the American baseballer, Ed Doherty, the golfer, Michael Jordan, the basketballer, Ricardo Patrizzi, the Formula One race car driver, and Sam Posey, the NASCAR driver and journalist. Now, here's a list of some other figures uh, well-known in society that I just want to bring to your attention all of whom are, in fact, model railroaders. 
Anne Diamond, the host of Good Morning Britain, Alan Cox, the Linux developer, Buster Keaton, the silent-era film actor and director, Warren Buffett, the billionaire investor, Elton John, the singer, Walter E. Disney, the entertainment magnate, Fred Rogers, the television host, Michael Palin, the member of Monty Python, Eddie Izzard, the British comedian, Sir Rod Stewart, the singer and musician, Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Britain, David Hasselhoff, the actor, Tom Hanks, the actor, Ringo Starr, the Beatles drummer, incidentally, who was also the original narrator of Thomas the Tank Engine, Mandy Pantinkin, the actor most known for his portrayal of Inigo Montoya in the 1987 movie The Princess Bride, and Tim Berners-Lee, the World Wide Web pioneer. I hope that with this episode, I have helped you fill out your modeling toolbox and gave you the tools and means of safely operating them that you need to start construction of a model railroad. I also want to take a moment to thank Pedro Reyes, who just became a $4 patron, and by just, I mean three months ago. So sorry, Pedro. Thank you very much for the long wait. If you have a question or comment, would like to join the Facebook community, would like to make a donation like our fine friend Pedro, or would like to learn more, please visit the show's website at www.bgtmrring.org. If you like the show, please give us a good review on iTunes and subscribe to our podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime that you have committed. And now, as a reward for listening through my closing spiel, your modeler's vocabulary phrase for this episode is All darky, no sparky, highball on a roll-by. Thank you very much for listening. Happy modeling. G4 from the editing room here. So sorry this one took so long to get out, but graduate school is gearing up, and, well, Staphylococcus doesn't cure itself. Um, anyway, I wanted to bring up two notes. Firstly, I wanted to thank uh, one listener, Lucas, very much for the link that they provided. It has been added to the links page of the website, which seems to be getting a lot of attention and notoriety for helping other people to learn more about the hobby. And then secondly, I wanted to thank a fellow podcaster, a Mr. Chris Geis. So I recently um, acquired a new motorcycle, and I was invited onto the So You Want to Ride a Motorcycle podcast for an interview. I think the final episode uh, topped out at an hour and 37 minutes, and I had an absolute blast. Um, And Chris himself allowed me to plug my podcast on his show. So I just want to say, everybody, if you are even remotely interested in things that have two wheels, I would like to heartily recommend the So 
he wants to ride a motorcycle podcast by Chris Geis. Thank you all so very much for being patient, and I hope you all have a very enjoyable summer.